Hello and welcome to The Conversation Weekly. This week, as Canadians head to the polls on the 20th of September in a snap election, why is Prime Minister Justin Trudeau so much more popular abroad than at home? A lot of it has to do with the fact that he's seen as sort of this hope of progressives. You know, he was a real contrast to Donald Trump. And we talked to a researcher who's been trying to understand why mosquitoes bite some people more than others. We found 14 bombas that was differently different between the groups that say mosquitoes like me, mosquitoes do not. I'm Gemma Ware in London. And I'm Dan Reno in San Francisco. You're listening to The Conversation Weekly, the world explained by experts. coast to coast. Tonight, Canadians voted in favour of a progressive agenda. Justin Trudeau is one of the world's favourite global leaders. According to a survey earlier this year by the polling company YouGov America, Trudeau is the most popular foreign politician to Americans. Of the people who responded and said they had a positive view of any politician, 39% said they liked Trudeau the most. But what about inside Canada? Trudeau, the Liberal Party leader, called an election in the hope of securing a majority in Parliament. Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau on Sunday called an early election for September 20th, saying he needed a new mandate to ensure voters approved of his Liberal government. He will soon find out whether or not Canadians even want him to be their Prime Minister at all. Or whether they prefer one of his main challengers, the Conservative Erin O'Toole or the new Democrat Party leader Jagmeet Singh to take the helm. In this episode, I've been talking to two experts on Canadian politics to understand just how popular Justin Trudeau is at home and abroad, as well as what his real foreign policy record has been, beyond just being a celebrity. First, I called up Alex Marland. My name is Alex Marland. I'm a professor of political science at Memorial University of Newfoundland in the furthest east part of Canada, and I study Canadian politics, political communications, and some of the research that I do is about how politicians use brands and how they try to manipulate the media. So let's start off with finding out who Justin Trudeau is. So tell us his story. So he was born in 1972. His father was prime minister at the time. Born into 24 Sussex, Justin Trudeau was never a stranger to politics. So he was immediately in the public eye as the first child of a flamboyant prime minister. Pierre Trudeau is a a rare Canadian prime minister who was on the international stage. He was also mingling with all sorts of American celebrities. And he did a lot in terms of changing the way Canada operates, uh, changing the constitution, creating a charter of rights and freedoms. And then his son comes along and he was in the news when he got married. He was, you know, and he's also very charismatic and good looking. And then Pierre Trudeau dies in 2001, and of course retired by this time. And Justin Trudeau gives the eulogy. I was going with my father and my grandpa Sinclair up to the North Pole. Very glamorous destination. But the best thing about it was that I was going to be spending lots of time with my dad. As in Ottawa, he just worked so hard. And everybody started saying he's setting himself up to be a future leader of the Liberal Party because it was very, very poignant and very almost theatrical. And 
Justin Trudeau is, has actually trained in drama and this kind of came through and he's, he's had to deal with the media as a celebrity his entire life. Canadians have what uh, sociologists would call a, a parasocial relationship with Trudeau. They think they know him because he's grown up in the public eye. He has charisma, but he has more than charisma. He has an ability to connect with people who he's never met before because he understands that everybody has seen him since he was a baby, which is very different than most celebrities have what's called a scribe celebrity. It's a celebrity that kind of emerges. So they know a time when they weren't celebrities. Justin Trudeau doesn't know what it's like not to be a celebrity. Okay, so Trudeau is a very famous face with a lot of charisma to boot. But when did he actually make his start in politics? He does end up running to become a member of parliament. He ends up becoming leader of the Liberal Party when the Liberal Party was really not doing very well. The Conservatives were were thumping them, frankly. And so in 2013, he becomes leader. And it was very clear that he became leader based on his charisma and his name. It was not because of his resume. He does not have a very thick, long resume. He had briefly been a teacher. He had bounced around doing things. It was definitely because of his pedigree, but also his ability to communicate with people. And so all sorts of liberals supported him. He becomes leader of the Liberal Party. And then, you know, a lot of people didn't really take him seriously going into the 2015 election. The liberals were in third place. Uh, The chances of him becoming prime minister without a lot of experience seemed fairly low. And all sorts of Canadians really actually warmed up to him and thought, yeah, you know, we we want him in there. And they didn't want Stephen Harper, who was a conservative prime minister for nearly a decade. And they all turned towards Justin Trudeau. Trudeau gets in with a majority government and he has all sorts of people thinking, wow, this is wonderful. This is fantastic. Almost like Obama-esque. And shades of Tony Blair as well. And then what ends up happening is as he's governing, he's going on the international stage He's mingling with people. And back here in Canada, we get all this news coverage about how everyone loves Trudeau. And if they love Trudeau, then they must love us. And Canadians are used to being ignored on the international stage. So we were just so proud. Um, But then what happens, as happens with many people, it happened with Obama, it happened with Blair, is you start making decisions. You start having controversies. People start getting frustrated. And Really, by 2019, things were really getting bad for Trudeau because he had this big blow up with a couple of ministers in his caucus. He proclaims himself as a feminist, as somebody who's going to do more for Indigenous peoples. And yet two of his strongest ministers, one an Indigenous woman, the other one a very strong, notable woman, a physician, and both of them have this real concern about a, a policy that was being introduced, uh, something called the SNC-Lavalin Corporation. It's known as the SNC-Lavalin kind of scandal, if you will. In February, Attorney General and Justice Minister Jody Wilson-Raybould was the first to go. She says Trudeau and senior government figures pressured her to stop the prosecution of SNC-Lavalin. I experienced a consistent and... And anyway, they, they end up resigning from cabinet. Uh, all sorts of resignations occur. Uh, there's all sorts of kerfuffle. Trudeau ends up going to the polls and he ends up being reduced from a majority government down to a minority government. And then we enter COVID. And what happens is at first, just after this 2019 election, Trudeau kind of stays out of the limelight a little bit because I think he realized that people were kind of tired of him and frustrated. And so he started putting in front other ministers. But then COVID happens and then suddenly Trudeau is a rock star again. Because what happens is he's going out every day standing out in front of the Prime Minister's residence, giving an update to Canadians. 
Since the beginning of the crisis, our government has been focused on keeping Canadians safe and making sure people are supported during this challenging time. And it became known as the morning show. People were tuning in to watch Trudeau and his numbers soared and all sorts of people thought great things about him. And now what's happened is uh, he's ended up calling an early election well early of what's needed, very clear that it's blatant opportunism to try to capitalize on this. And as a result, a lot of people are now seeing Trudeau again. And to a lot of people's surprise, they're actually getting really frustrated with him all over again. The issue of the campaign so far has been, why has there been an early election? And people are, are frustrated as the Delta variant expands, as there's a lot of anxiety. He's been greeted by all sorts of protesters when he goes places. At least one protester threw what appeared to be gravel or small stones at Trudeau. They're now not announcing where he's going to be until kind of the last moment to avoid protesters. So in terms of a prediction of where things will go, as things stand now, the Liberals are going to be lucky to get back to where they were in terms of number of seats. You know, the outcome is still unclear whether Trudeau is going to remain prime minister. So you've painted a picture of kind of how he got to where he is now, but what kind of prime minister is he? What is his political brand? So I think like any politician, your your brand and your image evolve over time. And then at the same time, you've got some core values that are unwavering. You know, it's certainly a constant is he's promoted himself as a feminist from the outset. That unwavering desire to improve the life of uh, women and girls, both within Canada and around the world, has been a constant theme of the Liberal government. Uh, they also very much have been promoting um, the middle class. And to use their words, we want to lift people up out of poverty. And they've increased taxes on the wealthy. So, you know, really their brand of politics is definitely it's left of centre, or at least, you know, Canada as a whole, its politics is left of centre compared to the United States. A conservative politician in Canada is still more left than, than a Democrat in the United States. And so in Canada, uh, the Liberals have very much gone left of centre. Um, one notable thing that happened, I think, is that he initially said that he would only run very, very small budget deficits, you know, about $10 million a year, you know, neither here nor there. And he blew that out of the water. And his government has been spending far more than it's been bringing in. And then COVID hit after that. And the amount of money they've been borrowing is, is quite extensive. So, you know, whether people agree with that or not, the bottom line is he had made this promise. There were other promises that he didn't deliver on, too, that people remember. He very much had, had championed the fact that he was going to change the electoral system. And that was going to be the end of the first-past-the-post electoral system. And after some consultation, he, he backed down on that and said, no, we're going to keep it the way it is. So there were a number of things that um, what some people, some academics have called sort of a, a rhetoric reality gap, which is he says things but and makes these promises and creates this hope and optimism. And that includes having Canada be a, a really major participant on the world stage. And then when it actually comes down to it, and you kind of look at what they're doing, a lot of the time they're not delivering on these lofty expectations that Trudeau had created. What has his popularity been like then within Canada? You said it grew after he got elected and then it fell around 2019. So it's clearly changed over time. Has he also always kept a traditional support base who've loved him throughout? And where's he losing and gaining supporters? Right. So the really, I would say, diehard liberals love the name Trudeau. It's very Kennedy-esque. 
it evokes a very positive emotion. So there are diehard liberals who just think he's fantastic. But public opinion polls show that uh, supporters of other parties, not surprisingly, are not keen on him. And in fact, some parts of Canada, particularly in, in Western Canada and, and in the prairies, uh, they can't stand him. And they didn't like his father either. <laughs> um, so it's both their brand of politics, but also their style and who they are. The Trudeau name is, is you know, really well liked in certain pockets of the country and, and not in others. Um, so over time, in terms of fluctuation, there was this big kind of surge in 2015 and 2016 when he was on the international stage, this kind of thing. Um, but then there was definitely a slow decline. There was one major incident, I think really where things started to change for Trudeau. It was 2017, and he went on a trip to India with his wife and children. And while they're there, they keep changing clothes, and they keep putting on traditional uh, Indian clothes. And it's really all about the photo op for him. And he ends up being mocked because somebody ends up saying he's more Indian than an Indian. Um, basically saying that, you know, he, he's this is like some form of cultural appropriation. Like it was like almost a tipping point where people started realizing that he's kind of hamming it up for the cameras a bit too much. He's a bit too much of a, of a celebrity. And then there were other problems that emerged as well. The 2019 election campaign, uh, he really took a, a real knock because these images appeared from his past, from yearbooks where he uh, taught as well as a high school yearbook. Another image of Trudeau wearing what appears to be blackface. It is the fourth similar image now to have come to light. But although that tarnished his image and it was that became international headlines and he was mocked and ridiculed, uh, the reality was it didn't really stick because I think a lot of people recognize that in fact Trudeau does want to try to help address systemic racism and other things. So not that he's maybe doing as much as some people feel he could, but I don't think that people felt that there was this sense of ill intent the way that there might have been with some people who have been accused of these things. What about outside Canada? Why is he so popular, do you think? Yeah, well, I've, I've written about this a little bit. I did do a, a piece about Trudeau's international brand. And, and one of the things I realized right away is that whenever we think about any leader from any country, the first thing is you associate the, the sort of main characteristics of that country with that leader. So it doesn't matter who's prime minister of Canada. Most people around the world will probably say, well, you know, he's Canadian. So maybe he's nice and maybe he says a and and a few other things and, and probably likes winter. You're just going to associate certain things with them. Um, but also you're not going to be afraid of a Canadian the way that you might be of a superpower, let's say. Um, but beyond that, uh, the thing with Trudeau is just how, how good looking he is, how charismatic he is. There was, you know, certainly I've, I've seen a, a number of news reports from around the world. But I think really a lot of it also has to do with the fact that he's seen as sort of this, this hope of progressives. You know, he was a real contrast to Donald Trump. And, you know, both physically and politically, they are massive, massive contrast between them. And does that international image as this kind of political rock god um, and celebrity, does it help or hinder him? Are, are there perils for him of being too popular abroad? Well, the, something to keep in mind is Canadians don't pay a lot of attention to foreign policy the way that people in Britain or the United States might. You know, a lot of the time, the, the attention that Canadians pay is, is more to domestic policy and maybe their relationship with the United States. As I wrote in one of these pieces that I put together, he may be a, a star at one of these uh, Davos conferences, but none of them can vote for him. This is the same for any politician, but you know, you're portrayed a certain way internationally. You get all sorts of media coverage, and you know, it could be Belgium, Australia, wherever. And the reality is that what does that mean for uh, you know a rural 
voter in Canada. Probably very little. Thank you so much, Alex, for coming on and talking us through that. Oh, thank you for having me on the program. I appreciate it. So Alex has explained to us some of the issues that Trudeau is facing at home as as Canada heads to the polls. And yet he's still hugely popular abroad. We wanted to find out whether that popularity is warranted. So I called up a Canadian foreign policy expert. I'm Jeremy Wildeman. Right now I'm a fellow at the Human Rights Research and Education Centre at the University of Ottawa. And I'm currently teaching at Queen's University as well. My research focuses heavily on Canada's uh, foreign policy, international relations, but uh, right now Canadian national identity and its relation to foreign policy. To understand Trudeau's foreign policy and the expectations on him, Jeremy says you've got to compare it to what came before, particularly under his predecessor, the Conservative leader Stephen Harper. Canada has had, and maybe still does, a very progressive image in international affairs, and this is something it had built up, a cachet it had built up over 70 years as maybe the nicer-speaking, English-speaking country in the world. Uh, the government of Stephen Harper really rejects this past foreign policy called Pearsonianism. Uh, it's really liberal internationalism, and this catches the international community off guard. And Harper was a bit of a reminder of another era where Canada was just a loyal British colony. So it was this way of thinking where we're in the Western camp, we have certain key allies, Britain, now the United States, and for Stephen Harper in the Middle East, Israel was seen as that sort of Western civilization that you just ally with. So when Trudeau won, he won with a promise that Canada's back. For most Canadians, it was a a breath of fresh air. The way Canadians see themselves in international affairs and at home, Trudeau represented that that return to that, that liberal internationalism. The real stark contrast was during 2015 election. During the Syrian refugee crisis, Trudeau rhetorically was very open to Syrian refugees coming to Canada. And this played a really interesting and important part of his election victory. OK, so there was a lot of hope there that Canadian policy might change direction when Trudeau became leader. But what actually happened? What's the reality been like of Trudeau's foreign policy? So the image was that that Trudeau could come back and sort of reset that clock and improve Canada's standing and its policy. But what the shocking thing was, and and there's now a fair amount of literature on this, is that uh, actually there wasn't much difference. And instead we have a Canada that its foreign policy is is probably more symbolic than it's ever been, at least in my lifetime. Uh, In a sense, Canada has more bad relationships in the global south than it's ever had, and it tends typically right now, to be allied more with the oppressors of countries and and the marginalised in the world. Can you give us some examples of where, for you, the rhetoric hasn't matched the reality? So a lot of the problems that the Trudeau government's had is in the Middle East. And one of the campaign promises he made in 2015 was to reopen diplomatic representation with Iran. But very quickly, uh, the Trudeau government abandoned those plans. So there's no embassies representing each other. And this was sort of something that Stephen Harper did. He created a lot of, of, of tripwires, making it very hard to reopen. There's something like 350 to 400,000 Canadians that have an Iranian background. So that's 1% of the Canadian population. And many of them, they might not support the regime in Iran, but if they need to go home or they have problems, they need to renew their passports. Not having that diplomatic representation causes chaos. If, like happened at the beginning of last year, an airline gets shot down with many Canadians aboard with flight PS752, the Ukrainian airlines flight. As new video emerges that shows two Iranian missiles 
hitting the passenger plane. But that has left 57 Canadians dead. Canada didn't have people on the ground to help the families because of this lack of diplomatic representation. So it's a very important issue, and Trudeau never filled it. So that's a little thing that also fits in with that broader Middle East conflict. Saudi Arabia and Yemen is very important. Canada is one of the main arms suppliers to Saudi Arabia, and it has been to the Middle East for about seven years. And Saudi Arabia has used these weapons in conflicts in the Middle East, and very notably in Yemen, which is an international and local crisis. This has not been very popular in Canada amongst progressives. The really big one that is important when it comes to Canadian politics is Israel and Palestine. So this has been a very hot-button issue in, in Canada because Trudeau was going to promise that more nuanced position. A lot of Canadians thought that Canada would take a more nuanced position on Israel and Palestine and be supportive of both of the Palestinians and Israelis. Instead, Canada retained those very partisan positions, really just uh, being one of the strongest supporters of Israel under the Trudeau government to the point where it's effectively supporting the building of settlements in the West Bank. And under Harper and Trudeau, there's been just really blanket support for Israel. A lot of foreign aid for Palestinians under Harper and also under Trudeau, but political support for Israel that has contributed to in the Netanyahu era of his being able to expand Israeli settlements in the West Bank and, and, and really sort of make it impossible to have a two-state solution. So you've, you've chosen three examples from the Middle East. Are there any other areas of the world where there's been foreign policy success or failure for Trudeau during the last couple of years? It's largely failures, and <laughs> unfortunately. Um, you could look at Venezuela. Canada has been one of the more reactionary countries looking to carry out uh, government change in Venezuela. Canada has been very supportive of the United States in that uh, position. Too. And that's been impactful in Canada because Venezuela was one of the countries that in the global south who helped push back against Canada winning a United Nations Security Council seat. Canada has failed in its bid to secure a seat on the UN Security Council. The vote took place today at the United Nations in New York. I should just very briefly mention China. Canada has really poor relations right now with China related to this very complicated issue of Wowee and, and trade with Iran and Canada <laughs> arresting Meng Wanzhou. Canada's arrest of one of the highest ranking executives at Huawei has placed the country in the middle of a complicated dispute between the US and China. Or holding her on behalf of the United States in Canada, which led to China in a tit for tat, taking two Canadian former diplomats in China and arresting them on probably spurious charges in sort of a hostage diplomacy, right? You've painted a picture there of foreign policy decisions which kind of hit up against the image that the rest of the world have of, of him and of Canadian foreign policy. How does that play out domestically within Canada? And does it matter politically? There's an argument among analysts that Canadians don't really care about foreign affairs. They only care about really domestic affairs. I'm going to say that is, is sort of a lazy argument because you can say that about every single country on earth. And you could say in Canada... It's a very big and regional country. Maybe the most Canadians don't pay much attention, but a lot do. This is a country that has a large percentage of its population that was born abroad. International affairs really matters to them. I mean, Canada really has communities from everywhere, right? So the affairs in any country in the world affect Canada. So in domestically, there's there are Canadians, though, that have more bilateral view of the world, that support our allies. And but there's many Canadians, and probably the majority, still identify with that liberal internationalist uh, image of Canada in the world. And they want Canada to not be selling weapons in the Middle East, 
to be focusing on building peace between Israelis and Palestinians, not picking sides. Uh, any Canadians who have this more progressive or this more liberal position, one that would also define Canada as more separate from the United States. And Trudeau's done very poorly in this regard. He's one of the report cards I've seen from Carleton University was giving uh, a D plus to Trudeau for uh, foreign policy or diplomacy. And it has an impact at home. This, this undermines the progressive image of Trudeau that he ran on and that he needs to form government in Canada. This is compounded by something that is a legacy that Trudeau inherits, which is Canada's settler colonialism of Indigenous nations. And now we're seeing that it gets harder to hide that dark history Canada has as they dig up more and more graves of children outside these residential schools that were used to try to destroy the Indigenous nations in Canada right up till 1996. Less than a month after the remains of 215 children were found in British Columbia, more unmarked graves uncovered at another Catholic residential school. This is all compounding to sort of undermine Trudeau's position. I should mention that he has a very mixed record amongst progressives when it comes to addressing Indigenous affairs, but again, much better than the previous Conservative government. So it's a very important time, and that's why this foreign policy is so important. Thank you for your time, Jeremy. It's been great talking to you. You're welcome. Our colleagues at The Conversation in Canada are working with experts across the country to cover the key issues in the election, and they'll be analysing the results when they come on election night too. Follow their coverage on theconversation.com. Now, another world leader who, like Justin Trudeau, is young and charismatic and visible outside of his own country is the French president, Emmanuel Macron. Macron is now also preparing to face the electorate in presidential elections in April of next year. Our colleagues at The Conversation in France have just launched a new podcast to guide you through it. We're joined from Paris by Claire Giacoverti, one of the hosts of the show. Hello, Claire. Hi, Gemma. Hi, Dan. Bonjour, everyone. It's great to have you on the show, Claire. What's the idea behind your new podcast? Basically, this new podcast is called Moi Président, Moi Présidente, so me, President. Um, it's a podcast that it aims at understanding what it takes uh, to be a French president. So the presidential elections are going to take place in April. So far, uh, attention has been focused on Macron and Marine Le Pen. Marine Le Pen has declared herself as a candidate, while Emmanuel Macron has not yet. And other than that, I've been about 12 who declared themselves as candidates, and there might be more. So we decided to try to understand what it takes to become a president, like what kind of competences you need, what kind of soft skills, and also what type of personalities. So you just launched this week. What's the first episode on? 
Yes, so the first episode is actually an interview with historian Alexis Lévrier, so from the University of Champagne-Reims. Um, he's a media specialist. And one of the main issues we found out with Alexis was that many uh, presidents have to la jouer people, that's the title of the first episode, which briefly or loosely translate as uh, being a celeb, being um, kind of a popular figure. It It fits for many of our former presidents. I mean, it fits particularly well for Nicolas Sarkozy. It does fit also well for Mitterrand, Pompidou, and especially Valérie Giscard d'Estaing. But of course, we also think of Macron. So the idea is looking at how uh, presidents have played with the media, and sometimes it can backfire. And what other issues are you going to be covering throughout the series? Uh, we have various experts looking at, for instance, the art of using the right arguments at the right place, so rhetoric, um, but also So like dealing with a crisis and perhaps also a little bit on the, the whole function of a president in France. Okay, so a real guide for any candidate out there. So I guess we should say that the show is in French. We should make that clear. But for anyone who wants to listen, try out your French. Where can they go find it? You can uh, find the show on most of the platforms, on Spotify, on Deezer, on SoundCloud, and of course, uh, on The Conversation. It's called Moi Président, Moi Présidente. And I really hope you're going to enjoy it. And we'll put a link in our show notes to this episode too. Thanks so much, Claire, for coming on. Thanks to you guys. Bye-bye. Now on to our second story today. We're talking to a researcher who is asking a question that's, well, probably been around since the dawn of humanity. Why do mosquitoes bite some people more than others? They definitely bite me more than other people, for sure. Do you have any idea why, Gemma? I don't. It's just, it's awful, painful big red welts. I'd love to know why. Well, I spoke to Madeline Wooding of the University of Pretoria in South Africa. She's been doing research and was able to find the chemical compounds that make some people more attractive to mosquitoes. She was also able to do it without forcing anyone to stick their arm into a box full of those horrible insects. I'm Dr. Madeline Wooding and I'm from the University of Pretoria and in South Africa. So I'm currently I'm working as a researcher in the chromatography and mass spectrometry division at the chemistry department. So we look specifically at mosquitoes and our main interest, of course, is malaria. For That's most, the main issue in the African content is finding new ways how we can reduce the spread of malaria. What ways are you looking at specifically? We've known for quite a while that mosquitoes need to find the people they need to bite in some way. And so what they use is chemicals. And that's pretty much where we come in as chemists to see, can we identify these chemicals that mosquitoes then kind of used to find the people that they would like to go and bite? Uh, I mean, this is the old age old question of you're sitting next to your friend and you go, oh, it's great sitting next to them. The mosquitoes like them, they won't bite me. So how do mosquitoes go about finding their meal? And then I want to ask you, how can I make my friend get bit more than me? <laughs> so mosquitoes, they're very interesting, actually. If you think, look at how small they are and they're flying around in this really crazy, complex environment. And I need to now find a blood meal. So the female mosquitoes, they need blood for the eggs to develop. So that's the main reason why they bite you. This mosquito is flying around and then they suddenly get prompted by a stimuli. So it will be either some type of a visual cue or mainly it's going to be some a chemical. So we know carbon dioxide is one of the main chemicals they use and they say they use it in like a long-range attraction thing. And it's very interesting about the carbon dioxide because that kind of prompted the idea as well if it's 
just carbon dioxide that they are using to find this warm-blooded um, creature or animal, why are certain mosquitoes so specific to feed on only certain animals or humans? There's mosquitoes that will only feed on birds, and there's mosquitoes that will only feed on humans. So the carbon dioxide is an initial prompt, but it, it's just the first little step to find this house that they want to blood feed on. Okay, okay. So they sense this carbon dioxide and they start navigating towards this host. Then what happens? So then they start using different things. So like I said, visual cues. So they will see a contour against the background or dark against light. Um, they also saying some heat and moisture. But the main thing they start detecting is chemicals. These mosquitoes are using some type of chemical to find this host as they're navigating towards towards them. So they will start smelling the chemical and they'll be like, oh, I'm very happy now. And they call this then your short-range navigation. You will also see, if you look at the antenna of the mosquitoes, the females have way more little hairs on it because it's the female that needs to blood feed than the, the male mosquitoes. So they're not exactly the same. It's also a way to tell the male and female mosquito apart. Huh, okay. So they've got little chemical sensor antennas. Okay, so they're getting close. They've got they've entered short-range detection mode. Then what happens? So then they start pretty much going closer to you and using different type of chemicals. So you'll probably have chemicals that's a bit more volatile, meaning how easily it goes into the air, right? And then they'll eventually come right up to you and then they will decide to land on you, not to land. And if they land, they'll also decide, oh, I like you very much. I'm going to bite you or I'm not going to bite you. Sure, 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 sure. So what was the fundamental question you guys were asking? Our main question was to see, is there some type of, chemical difference in your skin profile that makes you more irresistible to mosquitoes. <laughs> gotcha. Okay. So, uh, and then how did you go about testing that? So we went and asked 20 people. And the main question was, of course, to ask them, do mosquitoes like you or not? So it was very um, subjective. We do realize it, but I'm also sure you know. You know if mosquitoes like you or not. Sure, sure. People are always coming. <laughs> they come up to you and say, the mosquitoes always bite me and I never bite my husband. Or And then, so that was the main group we put the volunteers in to say, okay, so you're very attractive or you're not attractive to mosquitoes, not in general. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, we didn't also um, thought about where mosquitoes bite you on your body. So most mosquitoes prefer biting the lower parts of your body. So while we were sampling these people, we also then sampled your wrist, which is in the upper part versus the ankle part, to see if there's also maybe a difference between why they would throw the bite at the bottom versus the top. Yeah, my, my ankles are always just getting absolutely destroyed by mosquitoes, and I've always thought it was something to do with like the thin skin or something but maybe it's not that's exactly what we're looking at maybe there's some compounds that's but that you find on your ankles or like i said might just be a repellent compound on your wrist on the top part of your body that's making them rather bite at the bottom okay so you've got these 20 poor poor volunteers um how many were attractive to mosquitoes and how many thought they weren't attractive what was the number there um 50 50 percent so we're quite lucky so i got 10 to be attracted 10 not okay <laughs> so yeah there I, you go <laughs> but so what did you guys do for our part we just wanted to see okay if you think you get mosquitoes like you we'd like to sample your skin we want to see what is your skin chemical profile in our lab we developed a little sampler it's completely non-invasive it's a 
it's like a silicone rubber loop and we fashion it into an anklet or a bracelet. So you just wear it on your ankle or your wrist. And then I would cover it with, uh, they call it mailar, but it's just a little piece of aluminium. So you don't get contaminants from the outside. And I put some, just some dressing on it. So it, it's very non-invasive. It really doesn't do anything to you. And you put that on your skin for an hour. And after, and I, I told them to go about whatever they would have done. And then they come back. I just removed the little loopy and then we would analyze it with our fancy instruments we've got in the labs. So what, what we do have is um, chromatographic instruments. So I don't know chromatography if you um, know. It pretty much what it does, it separates compounds. So you've got thousands of compounds in your skin. It's really quite a lot. So the first idea is to, you need to now separate them from each other that we can be able to see them. Okay. So uh, you're looking at these compounds. You took these little bracelets and anklets. How many compounds did you guys have to sift through? We're looking at about 1,000 per sampling site. So it, it is, it's quite hectic because now you've got this machine, it's separating, and then we've got what they call a mass detectors. So they're very sensitive. They can see parts per billion. And we found 14 that was definitely different between the groups that says mosquitoes likes me, mosquitoes do not. And then also when we looked at the difference between you know, the ankles and the wrists, the different body parts, we found 20 compounds that was different between the two areas. So that's kind of what's really exciting us. Broadly speaking, what are they? Are they like little are they pieces of sweat? Are they little bacteria things? Like, do we know even what they are? It is of bacterial origin, but there's also compounds that's definitely from skincare products. And there's compounds that you get from foods. You, you've got this list of compounds and you kind of know that some of them are from this source, for potatoes, from bacteria and stuff. Um, so what happens now once you really start to determine that, yes, this is a compound that discourages mosquito bites. This one attracts mosquitoes. As you were saying at the beginning of this interview, you know, vectors of disease. So how, are you, how do you guys turn this research into disease prevention? The next step, of course, with the research is to, to test, of course, on mosquitoes to see if now in real life, put a bunch of mosquitoes in a cage and to see if it goes towards the chemicals. But the ultimate goal, of course, is to see if we can develop some type of repellent or attractant. So if we can see something is repellent, that's something you can put in a cream. You know, you've got these repellent impregnated sandals that's being developed and clothes and things like that. So those are nice for repellent. Then the other part, of course, is the things that's now making you attractive to mosquitoes. So all these chemicals, if you can put them together and you put them in what they call the chemical lure. And that lure is now more attractive for the mosquitoes than what you are sitting outside. You lure them away while you're wearing whatever repellent creams you have. And you put the lure in a mosquito trap and that's, and then you trap the mosquitoes. Oh, there we go. I mean, it's, uh, you know, I, I went camping last weekend and uh, you got to put your food over there so the bears don't come eat your food near your tent. Uh, it, it makes a lot of sense. <laughs> it's exactly like that, Jess. Awesome. Uh, well, when you guys do figure out how to prevent me from getting bit by mosquitoes and everyone else, please do, please do keep us in the loop. It's been fascinating talking to you. Oh, thanks. Thanks so much. Madeline Wooding of the University of Pretoria there. You can read more about her research in a story she wrote for The Conversation. 
And if you want to find out more about mosquitoes, check out Pasha, a podcast from our colleagues in Africa. They've just done an episode on why we need mosquitoes as part of a new series. Search for Pasha wherever you get your podcasts. To end this week's episode, here's a message from Moina Spooner from The Conversation in Nairobi. Hello, this is Moina Spooner, assistant editor based in Nairobi. Today I wanted to highlight a couple of pieces that we've done on Guinea. The West African nation has had a lot going on. There's been a military coup which ended 11 years of rule under Alpha Conde. It's still not clear what's happening, but in a piece that we ran in the wake of the coup, Benjamin Mainangwa from Lakehead University says it does highlight the institutional weaknesses of West Africa's regional body ECOWAS in preventing political instability. In addition, Guinea had an outbreak of the Marburg virus. Sometimes called Ebola's little sister, it's a highly infectious disease that causes hemorrhagic fever. Soon after the outbreak, Michelle Groom and Janusz Pawewska from the National Institute for Communicable Diseases in South Africa wrote a piece for us which brought some hope. They argued that many African countries are experienced in managing outbreaks of viral hemorrhagic fevers and that Guinean health authorities have been able to respond rapidly and implement measures learnt during the Ebola outbreak to control the spread of Marburg. I hope you enjoy the reads. Moina Spooner there, Conversation Nairobi. That's it for this week. Thanks to all the academics who've spoken to us for this episode and thanks to the conversation editors, Scott White, Leanne Goodman, Ines Gosana and Stephen Kahn and to Alice Mason for our social media promotion. As always, you can find us on Twitter at TC underscore audio, on Instagram at theconversation.com, email us podcast at theconversation.com. You can also sign up for a free daily email, it's a good one, by clicking the link in the show notes. If you're enjoying The Conversation Weekly, please leave us a rating or review wherever podcast apps allow you to. And please tell your friends and family about the show too. The Conversation Weekly is co-produced by Mend Marawani and me, Gemma Ware, with sound design by Eloise Stevens. Our theme music is by Nita Sol. I'm Dan Marino. Thanks so much for listening.